When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called The Importance of Getting Fired. A 10-year study that tracked nearly 3,000 executives discovered that of those that got fired, 91% of them bounced back and found a new position that was just as good or better than their last. Famous people to have been fired include Oprah Winfrey, who early on in her career, working as a local evening news reporter, was told that she was unfit for television news. J.K. Rowling was once a secretary until she lost her job for writing fiction on the company Time. And Walt Disney was once fired for not being creative enough. These headphones look silly. I think they make you look very dashing, but luckily no one listening to this will be able to see what we look like. So um, what have I interrupted you doing today? Just doing Duolingo, really. That's my guest today, legendary comedy producer, presenter and writer, John Lloyd. In 2007, a non-famous New Zealand woman was fired for using caps locks too often in her work emails. Now, that might sound strange and unbelievable, but in one big company that I used to work for on the senior management team, we had to attend a mandatory two-hour workshop called Use of Caps Lock in Emails. And people asked me why I left and got into comedy. I've got to a bit of Dutch, which is so difficult that I, I've sort of abandoned because I, I don't get my numbers. So I've gone back to Italian, which I speak a bit of. John's roll call of cool shows is pretty fucking cool. It includes The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Not the Nine O'Clock News, Black Adder, Spitting Image, and QI. And he's currently the presenter of the Museum of Curiosity on Radio 4. As well as talking about being fired, we touched on subjects including boarding school, Douglas Adams, what it takes to be a QI elf, doing yoga in leisure wear, having a dad in the Navy, life, the universe, and everything but I started by asking him about what's going on in QI Towers during lockdown. The thing that I do is the funny buzzers because it's my radio background. I can usually get a laugh on those, get on very well with sound, that's where I sit. They, they, they're getting there. I think Alex will be able to do it eventually. And the other thing is, the research is very good these days and the scripts are very well written. The thing they can't crack quite often is getting a question that a comedian will be enticed by. Mm-hmm. A good jumping you know? off point, you mean, so that the yeah. improvisation bit can happen. I mean, what's the secret of spectacular sourdough? I, d- I just don't think, I don't think you're doing that. What's the sweetest way to go? It's kind of, you need to have, you know, a picture. Mm. That you know, classically, why don't pigeons like going to the movies? Okay, you can do something with that immediately, and everybody did. You know, King Arthur's sword was called Excalibur. What was his What was his lance called? You know, yeah. again, yeah. It's all the pictorial ones. You're away, but it's sort of the, anyway. So, I went so, through two two last night, and there were a lot of red marks you know really so. i remember um your producer saying to me when i did my first one saying the absolute worst thing you can do on qi if you know the answer don't say it mm. <laughs> so it's all about not knowing the answer isn't it um, i was thinking um when you were talking about you, you know younger people coming through the ranks in qi and actually you've always been isn't there a story about where the ending for black adder came didn't that come from a from a sort of a young unqualified direction is that right or the going over the sort of going over to the poppies yeah, the final touch was mm. the uh, the poppies at the end and the, 
my PA rushed upstairs. So I've got an idea and came back with this lovely shot of the poppies. And we did a very slow mix through the sort of sepia colored earth. We turned it all black and white. And then we brought the color up very, very slowly. And it looked like the poppies were actually growing mm. the most cheapest special effect in the history of television, I think. And, and of course, one of the most memorable. Definitely one and, of the most iconic. Yeah. And it was, it was teamwork. Everybody in that room, there were about six of us, contributed a, a crucial element. Mine was to say, we can't put credits on this. It's impertinent. We'd just put Blackadder, uh, 1485 to 1917. That's all it says. It was, I got a bit goosebumpy even when you said that. I remember I was, um, I don't mean to make you feel old, John, but I remember being, I was a, because what year would that have been? I was a teenager, I think. When 89. Blackadder, yeah. So um, I was still just at the tail end of my teens and it was very, lots of the things you've worked on and people will know your name, of course, but um, not the nine o'clock news I watched. Um, and my brother was obsessed with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and then of course, QI, I remember, um, you know, been watching since the start, but Blackadder in particular um, had a really big impact. Um, do, do lots of people talk to you about Blackadder above, above other shows? What, what, I mean, I know everybody probably talks to you about Hitchhikers, but what, what are the shows that people sort of tend to really want to nobble you about at dinner parties um well the, yeah the the famous one spitting image um not the nine o'clock news if you're old if you're young enough as it were or old enough were, you nearly said old, old yeah, enough and old you saw enough. my little face fall but yes um and blackadder particularly the that last scene you know which is a very good life example of something that looked like a complete disaster and it's a career a finishing move which because of um, determination and courage and patience uh, and teamwork we put together a thing as a group effort and when we'd finished it everybody in the room had goosebumps it was like we touched the numinous in some way we'd kind of crossed some bridge into a into another state of being it was very very moving and the the overriding Emotion, strangely, was not pride or, you know, punching the air, but humility. A tremendous sense that it was a kind of, you know, I think you know, I think the universe is a conscious entity. And, you know, you can't legislate for success. What you have to do is turn up every day and do your best. Surprise yourself by doing better than your best sometimes. And occasionally, if you doggedly go on and on, sometimes for decades, you will eventually get a treat. And this is like a little, a little dog chocolate, you know, well done. You <laughs> behave a well. More, <laughs> a bit more than a little dog chocolate in terms of what you bequeath to the world. Remember when I read, um, I don't know if you've read Steve Martin's Born Standing Up book, which is a brilliant read, but he says in it famously, thankfully, persistence is a great substitute for talent. And I know you've talked a lot about, you're very self-deprecating, John, and you've talked about the fact that determination is one of your great qualities um, but there's a lot of inspiration in there too right I mean you've got a very creative curious brain so it's yeah. not just determination that's got you where you are I think some people would say uh, I'm stubborn you know I really don't <laughs> like to come last and I I give up much later I rarely give up at all but if I do it's much later than most people and that would definitely be something I wish I'd known when I was younger yeah, persistent. Steve Martin's absolutely right. That's the that's the key thing. And you know, I, I was watching uh, Elon Musk, who's a rather fascinating character, online the other night, and somebody said to him, "You know, what piece of advice would you give a young person?" He says, "Never give up. That's it. Mm. Just never, never, never give up." And inspiration, you know, yeah, I I think I've always been because the way I was brought up, which was. Um, my dad was in the Navy, so we were always trudging around the world. We were on troop ships playing deck quoits and then in station wagons, they used to call me a car full of, you know, toys and blankets and, you know, tins of beans and things going to visit the rallies in Ireland. And uh, so I was rarely at school until I was nearly 10. I, I did go to school, but then we'd have to be pulled out and go somewhere else, you know, or you'd be at school in Malta or Canada or all those different educational systems. And then you went to boarding school, right? So you were, yeah. you were at, at what age did you end up at, as a boarder? I was probably nearly 10, I think. So that's anyway, quite little, nine, nine and yeah. a half. No, no, it's nothing. I know people. You went when they were six. Oh, yes. And two. Well, one of my best friends was sent to boarding school at two. Can you believe? I mean, it's just insane. Why have children? 
I know it's because I come, as you know, I come from a world of, um, well, from a world, from a family of, of boarding school teachers. I was brought up in the grounds of a boarding school not far away from where your mum lived until, uh, you know, the end of her days. Um, and it's, it's an interesting world. Were you from a family where it was just automatically the case that you would spend your years in a boarding school? Um, it depended. I mean, we're from, my dad is uh, sort of bog-trotting Irish gentry, you know, the the ascendancy, as they call, you know, big crumbly houses with chickens, Irish. In, chickens in the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. Not poor. No, nobody. Well, there was one quite posh part of uh, my family, but most of them were, you know, they've got lots of heirlooms. I mean, famously, my dad's family owned Tintin Abbey, the sister abbey of the one in in England. Really? Wow. Where is Tintin Abbey? Is it in Wales or is it? Yeah, in England? I, I think so. We'll, we'll Google it. We'll put it in the show notes so we don't yeah. sound stupid. So lovely little abbey on a farm uh, with a river running by and a stone bridge. And uh, when I was very small and my great aunt Belinda was still alive, we would have tea in the abbey. And it was literally Georgian tea service at one end and honeycomb and start and cakes. And at the other end, uh, open to the sky, you know, pigeon droppings everywhere. Um, I mean, completely eccentric. But I was going to say, the, because of all this travel, my mum, who's very bright, but came from a, a generation where her dad wouldn't let her go to university because she was a girl. So she missed out there. And, but she's a very, very curious and smart person. And she used to teach us in the car, on the ships, um, by basically giving us quiz games. So in a way, QI comes way, way back from then. And then it's a bit of a shock when you've got, it's almost like an early form of home ed, I suppose. And then suddenly you've got to sit down, shut up. No, don't ask questions, Lloyd. Right, you know, take your pants down. You're going to get four of the slipper for that. Think, well, what's, what's, what's happened? And how was that? So the shooks, my, my dad, who's um, he, he's a bit a bit older than you. He's about 10 years older than you. And I know that he went, he also travelled around the world and his dad worked in um, sort of finance and he ended up living in uh, Rhodesia as then, then was. And then getting sent over with his brothers to boarding school. I think he was about seven or eight, so tiny bit younger than you were. And he said it was literally like landing on another planet and he didn't mean to be naughty and non-conformist, but he just did not know how to play sport, what to do. And he was perpetually sort of picked on by what he now looks back on and says was a sadistic housemaster who who was out for sort yeah. of blood and and was it a similar experience yeah yeah for I had you two, 10 years later i had two sadistic housemasters um uh no it, it's it beggars belief that we allowed it to happen but that was the way it was we we just got used to it did you tell your mum or did you did you ever try to tell anybody what was going on you weren't allowed to you had to write letters home at prep school every Sunday we sat for an hour or whatever and you wrote a letter dear mummy and daddy sausages for tea that kind of Molesworth thing and then you had to take the letter up to the teacher at the desk up front and if there was anything untoward any criticism of the school you had to write it out again it sounds uh, stricter than being in prison I think even in prison you're oh, allowed yeah, to write the, a letter who is it that said somebody said anybody who's been to an English public school feels perfectly at home in prison it's, it's actually easier You're, are you somebody who's been as defined by the failures if we can call them that as you have been by the successes yeah and, and I I have a mantra disaster is a gift because you look back on things that at the time you think okay my life is over but 30 years on you go oh thank god that happened because if that hadn't happened then this wouldn't have happened so yeah, I've been fired a lot, uh, usually by close friends, and they wouldn't call it firing. You just become surplus to requirements. They think, I, I don't need you anymore. I think I'll have all the money. Thank you very much. Um, and and I'd, um, money, by the way, is not something that's ever driven me. If you've got enough money to go to the pub and you know pay the bills, that's fine by me. Um, I'm driven by ideas, principally. I can't, can't resist a good idea. And it was, you know, that thing about, being dumped, you know, until I was nine and a half, I was a happy kid, you know, we had a really interesting life, you know, living in places like Canada and Gibraltar and Malta, and it was fun. The Navy's a great family, um, you know, going on amazing trips to the lakes of Canada and the snow and the tornadoes, it was wonderful. And your dad was senior, was he? Did you did you have all the sort of, you know, support of a, of a senior ranking yeah, dad? Yeah, yeah, my dad, uh, as they say, had a good war. He was um, 
very young. He was in motor torpedo boats and was highly decorated and was known as Cat's Eyes Lloyd, the man with the sharpest eyes in the fleet. <laughs> and so he rose very quickly through the uh, after the war and was in fact the youngest captain in the Navy when he was made up. He's only 37, which is wow. young. Yeah, really young. So yeah, what I remember is my dad turning up at prep school in the official, you know, his official uh, black Navy car with a pennant on the front and getting out all this gold braid glittering. He was a complete hero to me when I was a small boy. Uh, yeah. Um, and did that have an impact, do you think? So what you've gone on to do couldn't be more different outwardly than what your dad did. But I guess you have had one of the things I think of when I think of you and the things you've done is how enormously curious you are. So you, you're, you're genuinely curious about everything and everyone. Your world seems to keep getting bigger and bigger as you get older, which is quite something to yeah. pull off. And also your retention of information. And um, I sometimes wonder how much, because some people are, you have an incredible capacity for, for learning things and then being able to put them back out into the world, um, which I guess is the sort of QI thing, right? You have loads of knowledge, not necessarily at a deep, level but hugely diverse inquiring yeah. mind it's very shallow my knowledge but extremely broad there really is almost nobody that i can't have a conversation with because i know something about the subject but just going back to my dad i remember in one a lot of work has been incredibly difficult and pressurized and sometimes quite scary and i was talking to my dad once didn't have really any emotional conversations but i was just vaguely sort of saying the thing is, Dad, it's easy for you as a naval officer. You just tell people to do things. I have to persuade them, you know, and that's difficult if you've got a lot of anxious actors and, and you know, writers who are sticking to their guns, being as persistent about not changing things as I am persistent about trying to change them. And he said, oh, no, John, that's totally, uh, you're quite wrong there. Um, the uh, Navy, you know, you have to govern by consent can't just tell people to do things they know to be wrong and there is a very long history he said of mutiny uh, of honorable mutiny in the royal navy it's not only captain bligh you know and, and very often the mutineers would be exonerated and the captain would be you know stripped of his rank or put into prison or whatever and i found out years later that my dad actually led a mutiny at dartmouth he was he was, he was sent to, away to school at 13 to, to the Navy at 13, rather. And he led a mutiny because the food was so terrible. And they, again, they were cleared of all charges. So you could have done that at boarding school, had you known, for the inedible slop you were getting. If your dad had told you that at the time, it might have given you some inspiration. I wish he had so. told me, yeah. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah. So, but it, it, this, I say nothing is wasted. So definitely that thing from sort of nine and a half, that, look, you're on your own here, isn't really... And I'm a helper rather than somebody who is helped. I don't expect help from people, really. Is that to do with vulnerability, that you don't want to be vulnerable enough to need help? No, you just got used to, you know, you're on your own, mate. You know, you've got to look out for yourself. And it's a very good thing to have, you know, of not to be needy for other people's attention or for their uh, assistance. I, but I definitely like... Working together with people is what I like. I like very flat hierarchies where, you know, somebody has to have final cut, which as the producer, that was usually me. But underneath that, I don't care if the ideas from the runner or from, you know, Frank Finley or whatever. It's, um, and it's a very productive way of working. If you, if you were to come and see how the QI office works, you know, I often say, Kelly, that Sarah and I, and my wife, who is the MD and, and runs everything, really, the logistics and all the, the money. Brains and the brains of the operation. The she's the, yeah, she's the, without which it wouldn't work. And I often say that I wish that we had learned how to run a company properly before having children, because we'd have done it a lot better. What would you have done differently? So find the best people you can that you like and, uh, and think have the capacity to do the job and then encourage them. You might say love them, but that's probably a bit impertinent with a new employee. But um, we definitely do. You know, children are fine. You know, children do not need boundaries. They do not need molding. They don't have been told to go to their room and they certainly don't need to be punished. That's insane. It doesn't work punishment at all, especially not with small children. It just keeps them quiet. It doesn't change their behavior. And it's cruel and, uh, and unusual. 
So, you know, when uh, people, we find these people who all basically, you know, they tend to be quite nerdy. You know, they're fact nuts. They've, they've probably watched every single episode. They've read all our books. You know, they just love facts. But they're, you know, sometimes low on confidence. Sometimes people are angry. Sometimes people are, have suffered mental health issues, depression particularly. They're, because they're very unusual people because they've got the curiosity of a five-year-old and the intellect of a sort of, you know, a consultant surgeon or a PhD or something. You have to you have, have to have both bits, really. And how do they get the knowledge? I mean, obviously, QI elves are not just Googling. They're doing something way beyond what anybody could do if they wanted to know, you know, the origins of whatever it might be. So, so how, and, and you, too, are constantly researching and looking yeah. into things. So where, where do you go for that knowledge? Where, how does a QI elf? Because you don't go you, to QI elf school, do you? You've just got to no, no. land in the job. No, you read. The rule is everything is interesting if looked at closely enough for long enough or from the right angle. So you're asked to read everything. It doesn't matter. Particularly, walk towards the sound of gunfire, read things that you wouldn't, what you don't think you'd want to read. So people who come with an arts degree will get interested in physics. And the people who've got a maths and physics degree suddenly get interested in history. So everybody's a generalist. And we very often, it's better to put somebody who has no knowledge, if you want to, understand i don't know non-euclidean geometry or something like that or some obscure of a quantum electrodynamics you better put somebody not a scientist on it because then they know they they know they don't know anything so they read this incredibly difficult usually badly expressed science and try and find a nugget and when you've got the nugget then you start working outwards from there so it's called teaching upside down you look for the don't try and learn the basics because the way we teach people currently is the basics are the most difficult things the times tables used to make me cry when i was you know five or six never really understood them and the alphabet is a series of weird hieroglyphs you know things like learning to read is very difficult hieroglyphs and what you should do is everything should be fun until children are a certain age when they you know, the fun thing is, is what's missing. It's very hard QI work, but it is always rewarding. You never don't find anything. You just have to keep going beyond the pain barrier. It's often the case that you won't find, yes, yeah, supposing you're looking, trying, what's, what have we got, the S series at the moment? You want something interesting about, uh, what was I doing last night? I uh, can't think. All right, Somalia. Mm -hmm. And you might read for two and a half hours about everything you can find about Somalia and not find a single interesting thing. And then suddenly there it is somewhere. Somalia is the only country in Africa where everyone speaks the same language. Ah, okay. You're in and then you become fascinated. Now, now you know you've got one, you know there must be another one. And of course it's never ending after that. Namaste motherfuckers. Hey motherfuckers. This is a quick shout out to the dafters. Centred around BAFTA-nominated films, the DAFTAs celebrate the best spoof film. They were founded by Tamara Oliver, in tribute to her partner, Joel Varis, who died of cancer in October 2019. The year after his death, the first DAFTAs took place in Soho in London, and the second DAFTAs just happened, a virtual event with a massive global audience. And next year's DAFTAs will be offering mentoring opportunities and lots of other funny fascinating good stuff there's a link to all of that in the show notes right let's get back to namaste motherfucking john lloyd you trade in laughter don't you in, in making people laugh and i think um with writing trying to be funny i mean the first thing is to not try and be funny when you're writing as you know but i think the other thing is it very often is when you think you're out of ideas and you just keep writing and keep writing and there's literally nothing more i can say on this topic um, and that's when the bit will come that is the bit you need when you when you think you're an hour past there being anything relevant to write. It's almost when your kind of unconscious brain takes over because you've fatigued your conscious brain so much. Um, and is that the, the kind of idea of it, it's QI came from um, it came out of that difficult period in your life, didn't it, where you were sort of looking for meaning and looking for facts yeah. and answers. And um, would you say at that point, I mean, I mean, you talked about getting sort of fired by close friends 
and obviously the Douglas Adams sort of story I don't know how much you want to talk about that I mean you're very you're you know you're very much associated with the Hitchhikers sort of franchise and unusually I guess compared to how things go now that started as a radio comedy right before the books I think lots of people think the books were what started and you were friends with Douglas Adams that you went to Cambridge were in a same college as him or a different no, college? No he, he was the next door college we we weren't uh we knew each other at Cambridge, we weren't friends, um, you know, go to the same parties, that kind of thing. Because he ran a review group with a couple of friends in St. John's and I ran one in Trinity. So we were kind of rivals really before we were friends. And we got to know each other. He's a year younger than me or six months younger than me. So he came down the following year and that's where we started to get to know each other. And we became incredibly close friends. It was one of the most stimulating conversational friendships you could possibly have. We ended up sharing a flat and then a house together and and writing together i got a job as a radio producer and he didn't have a job so we used to write together in the evenings so we'd done a lot of stuff and he was about to give up i came we lived in this weird house in roehampton sort of furnished house and i came home from it's quite a long commute too from sort of oxford circus uh i came home to find douglas in his bedroom which had for reasons we never discovered seven wardrobes six of which were locked, so he never even found what was in them, <laughs> sitting on his bed in tears saying, Johnny, I can't go on. I'm going to give it all up and become a shipbroker in Hong Kong. And literally the next week, he got the commission for Hitchhiker's Pilot. It's that, you know, like, just, if you could, just, if you might, might have missed that by one day, you know, if you'd, that, that's why it means never give up. You never know what's around the corner. I was talking about how I'd gone back to my prep school 40 years, no, my public school, 40 years after um, having left, not having been back because I thought I hated it so much. And I realized that I didn't hate it that much at all. I remembered that's where we put on the Greek play in the sunken courtyard. And that's the library where I wrote that amazing essay. Oh, that's where my friend and I used to go and have breakfast. And I said, it was a great catharsis for me. To, I'd carried this around for 40 years. Every time I thought of school, I was full of fear and anger and it was all gone. So that was an amazing thing. And um, I said, I had to do that for a show called, I've never seen Star Wars, where you, you agree to do five things you've never done that are surprisingly, surprising that you haven't done them. What were the that others? So you went back and what were the other four? The others were Milk a Goat, which yeah. I did on the stage at the BBC Radio Theatre. I grew up with goats, so I was milking yeah, you, goats yeah. when I was a very tiny girl. We, had sort of small, we were very much modelling our life on the good life at the time. So you milked a goat, you went back to your school. Uh, I... Uh, read um, the uh, curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, which was excellent, which I hadn't read. I watched the uh, the wire, which I'd never seen. I slightly misunderstood the instructions. I watched a whole a whole, whole season, box set. I, right? Yeah, <laughs> instead of just just watch one or half of one. <laughs> and the last thing was uh, they said they take you out to lunch. The producer and Marcus Brigstock, who was the host, and they said, "Have you ever done any stand up?" I said, no, I haven't, oddly. I've been in reviews and things, done sketch comedy. So that's the other thing you need to do then. So I had to go to a, a pub in Crouch End called, is it called the Queen's Head? The King's Head, downstairs King's at Head. the King's You see, most yeah. of us are fighting to get stage time there, John, and you just bowled in as a social experiment. Yeah, well, it was. It was horrible. <laughs> I was catatonically terrified. I thought, you know, it's that sort of thing. I would rather be dead than do this. You know, that's what they say Americans... Um, the, the major public, um, most people... Would rather at, have more of a fear of public speaking than death. That, that's right. So that, who was it? Jerry Seinfeld says that, so that for most people, they'd rather be in the casket than deliver the, the eulogy. eulogy. Yeah. Although actually I think that's been, that's been um, the, the kind of um, idea that public speaking is more scary than death has been, yes. um, has since been un, sort of unpicked in terms of what the comparators were. But they said, one of the things they say with public speaking that's so hard and with stand up is we all assume, don't we, that people are terribly interested in what we've got to say and they really know. And actually the truth of the matter is nobody knows what we were planning to say. Nobody knows what our internal <laughs> dialogue is. You know, imposter syndrome is comparing our our internal dialogue with other people's exteriors, um, which is why we all think that we're inadequate because we see what someone is projecting to us. Did you do, how did you write your material for that? Was it a sort of five minute open mic kind of a spot? I, I really enjoy talking and acting, always have done, but it's the writing and the learning that is so hard that I really suffer. 
I get really low. I, I, I feel stupid that I've even decided to do this. I think it's vain and arrogant and I'm, I'm very thick. I haven't got any ideas. But and do just, you really think that, even despite the evidence that is all around you? The yeah, when I'm trying written... to do it, I don't find writing any easier than I did when I was 22. You know, but I you've still had a career it. writing, among other well, things. Well, this is the line. The line is, writers are people who find writing harder than other people. Mm-hmm. No writer who's any good is ever satisfied. No book is ever finished. You have to be, the publisher has to tear it out of their hands. You know, somebody said the, the only writers who like uh, their work are bad writers. Because the threshold isn't where it needs to be to be a good yeah, writer. Yeah, so, so the, and so what, you, what I can do is, you know, I can do an approximation by basically pinching old jokes. And so, uh, you know, I know about structure. And so on. So I started on that. I went out with, to lunch with Phil Jupiter and asked his advice. Yeah. And he said, You could well, have asked him to just do the bloody thing. Could you just yeah. write me a tight five, Phil? He said, Frankly, John, he had, I had a beard at the time and I was quite porky. He said, well, you look like, you know, basically somebody's grandpa or that seedy man who hangs around the children's playground. <laughs> so I would, I would say that. So I did, you know, I said, they, they wouldn't let me say I'm doing this for a bet or for a radio program. They just introduced me cold. Ladies and gentlemen, Lloyd. Wow. And I, I trundled on and did the joke about the playground, which got a bit of a laugh. But the only thing in it that I was really proud of was chimes with what you were saying earlier, which is the truthful bit. The best laugh in it was I was saying, you know, we're trying to, um, we're trying to do some decor at home that's decorating. I'm going through those, you know, paint catalogues with um, all the different names, you know, frisson and emerald. Monkey's testicle. Yeah, all that. Elephant breath. And I said, I found one called tile. So a paint colour called tile, I must go and look at my tile catalogue and see if I find a tile uh, <laughs> coloured paint. Uh, and it was, you know, it wasn't, it was just true. And it was immediately, they got it. That, now that's writing. That's just telling the truth, isn't it? Because people think that, you know, teaching is about learning. It isn't really. It should be about understanding. There's a big difference between learning something, which is where most of us got through the exams is learning things by heart without really understanding what they mean. And that's completely not what a QI researcher does. A QI researcher is a search for meaning in every sense, you know, to find by means of a funny one-liner, you actually approach the truth more exactly than you would by being able to reel off a lot of Latin names, you know. I think you realise as a stand-up, you had a sort of taste of it, I guess, at the King's Head, is that um, the more I'd spent my whole corporate and commercial career trying to hide any sort of chink of vulnerability or authenticity, now I look back at it, when you look at the senses of self, the gap between the self I was conveying to the world, you know, when I was the youngest and only female member of the, you know, the ITV board mm. and those kind of big moments it was all kind of faking it and trying to ape what was around me to survive. And then when I took up stand-up, you know, quite late in life, um, I don't know, what age were you when you did your one, John, that, that five minutes? Oh, 50-something. So you beat my record. I was 45 when I did my first gig, which, as you know, in the stand-up business is, is, is old. And, um, and then you don't want to be too high status as a stand-up, or if you do, it's got to be a conscious decision. But as you know, it's the bits where you actually let them in and show them your flaws that enable them to laugh with you and I suppose that's almost the opposite of what the the business world tells us isn't it where we're supposed to be this sort of you know you've seen the way the tv industry has changed in the years you've worked in it and that sort of almost lack of soul we've got to sort of produce certain things and we're executives now and we could be an executive at google or we could be executives in a gizmo manufacturing plant this is what we're doing and we're churning out products and it's 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 quite an uncreative way to be i guess if you're sort of hiding that inquisitive self and hiding the self that might fail i don't do that i try and be the same person to everybody uh, and I'm trying to be as open as possible because I can't be asked with pretending to be something I'm not. And um, I think it's terrible that people do that. I don't suffer from imposter syndrome. I know they say you either do suffer from imposter syndrome or you're lying. Or you're a narcissist. That's my other theory, which I, I know I you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't because this is like the thing is I know what I do well, even if it's often very difficult. And I know what I'm lousy at. I don't feel, for example somebody's going to suddenly find out that I can't really produce good television programs. You know, I know I've done enough. I mean, I've obviously, obviously done programs that haven't worked and, and, and had tons of failures and things. And I say, okay, that was useless. I've screwed that one up. 
And it doesn't dent you. It doesn't dent you enough not to keep trying. I mean, I guess that's your never give up thing. Because where does, if you, if you feel, I mean, I do suffer from imposter syndrome. And there was a time when people thought it was more of a female thing. And now I think research says not necessarily no, no. Um, that perhaps it's more talked about by, by women traditionally, but it's not a sort of gender specific thing. But where does, um, if, you, if you don't suffer from imposter syndrome and you're able to square up to failure and, and your sort of philosophy about disaster being opportunity, where does the depression come in then? Because um, I know you've had you know you've been plagued by the black dog sometimes I have as well where does that come from for you if it if it's not a lack of self-belief or a fear of failure I'm not saying I don't have enormous flaws still but I'm a very different person to what I was before I had my midlife crisis you know because you know the way that I was brought up I think was you know you've got to be top you've got to come top you know it mattered to me if I won an award I was pleased and if I didn't win one I was disappointed sometimes cross because I think okay you know, because I've been a producer since I was 22, it's really the only job I've ever had. So I've always been, you know, in charge. And so I've learned several things. One is to trust my own judgment, because otherwise, who else are you going to trust? You know, at least one person's going to like it. So I know what I like, which I think is a very unusual quality. I'm not swayed by other people liking things. If they say, well, this song's pronounced, so it doesn't do it for me. It's not arrogant. It's just that this is what my mind tells me I like. I'm very sure of myself in that way because I've been doing it for more than 40 years. You're also internally referenced, I guess, which is something a lot of people, a lot of people in our business are purely influenced by what's going on around them and yeah, wanting yeah, to and please I, I don't, people. I don't, it's, it's, it's a disaster for my career because I like doing things that are completely new. You know, I don't want to do something I've done before. I like to move on. And so you can't sell those kind of programs to anyone anymore because they don't recognize them. And they say that in meetings. I don't, I've never seen anything like this. I said, yeah, that's an idea. That's why it's new. So most of my life, you know, the first couple of years of anything have been what apparently is a complete disaster. Because the thing about creativity, it's a bit like science. It's a, it's a process of continual correction. You know, science is never finished. It's never right. It's always the best guess we have, the best try. And similarly with a, you know, sitcom, you know, you start out, you've got a very good idea, you miscast it you know, or the, one of the writers isn't right. And you, you keep jiggling around and suddenly you get this golden period when everything's working, you know, everything's fun and, and you're surprising yourself, as I said, with how good people can be when they're working you know, hand in glove. If you think about the old days of, of television and radio, when we had, you know, two and a half channels, you were allowed to fail or something didn't have to be an instant hit because there yeah. were so many less, you know, I think creative content wasn't, seen as a commodity in the same way and commercial television was sort of in its infancy so we weren't thinking of it in that way we were thinking of it in terms of ideas and entertainment and I know a lot of people at sort of our stage I'm very diplomatically saying we're the same age obviously we're not quite but people who've been kicking around a while um, I think it is quite depressing now what you've got to hit in terms of a metric for success you know what I think QI I don't know if you agree but I don't suppose it would have been commissioned if it were a new idea this year or last year I think it was it was it's it's still of huge value or it wouldn't still be on air but do you think it's an idea people would go for now or do you think it would need to hit more sort of commercial beats and be more sort of gimmicky well it is it is a very commercial program because it it repeats on dave sometimes as much as 30 times every week i know i get my little royalties from that yeah. and it does well around the world right there's there's it, it, it's, no, it, it's a, it does very well in australia and new zealand not many other places actually but if you'd let me handle it for you very, and that's what British. i did for a living i could have got it all over the world for you john when i was a in charge of such things well you know again it, it's it's a different landscape to what it was in in the 80s and i think when we took the original idea of a pilot of qi to BBC controller of BBC One didn't get it at all, and the controller of BBC Two said, oh, "I'll take sixteen. They're amazing." You know, I mean, what she did after the pilot, but you no, know, she saw it straight away, and and the other one didn't. So, so it was completely subjective. I guess that is what TV commissioning is, right? It's 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 entirely down to one or two people's opinions, and whether I certainly know when I used to work in the world of game shows, the advantage you had with game shows, and I guess to a degree with a panel show, is you can play it for the commissioners. You can actually say, "Well, don't listen to me. Let's." do the gameplay. I know that's how, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, I think would never have been commissioned had it not been for the fact that Claudia Rosencrantz at ITV played it with real money, albeit not a million yeah. quid, but that, that, I think that's what did it.
what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment? And um, you sent me this ahead of uh, of us talking, which is um, a QI information flowchart. So yes, tell me, tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so we had uh, moved out of London to give the kids a decent childhood, and we had for a few years before we moved out a tiny little two bedroom cottage in a lovely village called Great Chew. And that wasn't big enough for us and the three kids to fit in and the nanny who uh, we, we, we took with us. Um, so we rented another little uh, space, which was par- partly over the village shop in the center of the village across the green. And I had this kind of weird life of going off and shooting and building society ads during the day and then coming back and reading Chuang Tzu, the Chinese philosopher and, and Heidegger and things, trying to work out what I was doing myself. Idyllic village, one of the most beautiful villages, I think perhaps the most in the whole of England. And so we all crammed into this little cottage over the village shop and the nanny had the other one and would, you know, in the evenings trying to get the kids to bed, a lot of yelling and, you know, stepping on the Lego and shouting and, <laughs> and baths overflowing and all that. And we could hear across the green, the nanny and her smart friends who put her down from London for dinner, you know, lovely Aston Martin and clink of glasses <laughs> as we were being driven to despair. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so she, when she had to go off to, you know, to work during the day or go and look after the kids, the, I was allowed to go and use, she had the bedroom so upstairs of the little cottage and the ground floor was where I could go and write if I wanted to. And so I thought, well, I've been doing commercials for, I don't know, 10 years nearly. I'm wasting my life. I need to write the novel. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start where I got a piece of paper and pencil. and went and sat at the desk looking out the window over the village green. And suddenly, this is a science fiction novel. The, 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 it's the, uh, the book that if Douglas hadn't sacked me, and he'd stayed alive, the book we might have written together. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. It's not the same characters, but with all that extra information, all that experience of life, you know, um, that was the thought. Anyway, so I sit down at the desk, and suddenly the top of my head opens, as I've said before, like a boiled egg, and into it comes this thing. It's called QI. It stands for quite interesting. It's the opposite of IQ, so it's a different kind of way of thinking, sort of thinking upside down. And the idea is that everything in the universe, without exception, can be interesting if looked at long enough, close enough, or from the right angle. And I get the pen, I start writing all this stuff down. How does it work? But what you do is you have these amazing researchers, and it's going to happen here in Great Chew. I know exactly the house. You won't believe it's the house we identified where QI is going to start was a a tumble-down farmhouse looking over where Soho farmhouse now is mm-hmm. and the Beckhams now live in that house but that was originally I tried to get the owner of the village to sell us that house so amazing researchers all a bit eccentric very bright very nice sitting in this beautiful rural setting with the highest technology we have you know uh, we can have so all the mobile phones satellite dishes on the roof you know very very modern looking and these researchers dig out stuff and we turn it into, into stuff. So the idea was that QI is a mining and manufacturing company. We go into the deserts of dullness and we just bulldoze hundreds of millions of tons of rock looking for opals and sapphires and you know, nuggets and iron or whatever. And then we smelt them into things. We make them into jewelry, make them into things to guide lasers or drill bits, whatever, whatever we make. So that's, that was the analogy. Here's another thing, Kelly. I never take credit for my ideas. You know, I don't have an idea. An idea has me. It arrives. You go, my only skill is to recognize a good idea when I see one. This comes from outside me. I was literally taking dictation. That's why it was such a Damascene moment, such an epiphany, because I couldn't believe it. You know, happened to me once when I was writing a movie for Paramount and I got stuck on the last scene. I went to bed very tired and woke up in the morning, had a shower and suddenly I got it. And I ran down in my, you know, pajamas or whatever, in my towel and just sat and wrote this last scene. I was literally, my eyes were like in, you know, rapid eye movement sleep. You know, I was taking, and he went, and he comes in there. It wasn't me doing this. 
Somebody's but maybe what you. you do that is a skill is you know how to get out of your own way because we're most like ourselves when we're not trying to be something, aren't we? And maybe that is a skill you have to let that because where does that come in? Not everybody has those ideas. And you may say, oh, well, I'm lucky. They kind of come into my head and my head, top of my head flips off like a, like a boiled egg. But for some reason that doesn't happen to everybody. And it, it yeah, ties into what you were saying about parenting in a way it is getting out of the way. Yeah, isn't it, well, it? this is, you know, one of the ideas and many ideas in the novel, there are also these sort of mad religions. And one of them is absenteeism, uh, which has only one commandment, which is get out of the way. And if you think about it, in, in almost everything, if you remove yourself from the equation, everything goes much better. Remove your ego part of yourself and just be. It's certainly true of, let's say, film editing. Anyone who says a film's very well edited, well, you obviously not enjoyed the film very much if you're looking at the editing. Mm. You shouldn't notice it. That's the whole thing about editing. Same with directing. You shouldn't notice the cuts. That's what cuts are there for. It's what the eye naturally does. Oh, what's that? And it goes in close. And similarly with parents, we're all told it's all about, you know, setting boundaries and, you know, doing stuff and forcing children. It isn't, it's just be there and be nice. There's nothing to it, honestly. It's very hard to learn that, no. But trouble is we don't know that until we're old enough to be the grandparents. Yeah. Maybe that's why grandparents are so great because they've screwed it all up with their own kids. Although your, your three kids, I've, I've met two of your kids, they seem to have turned out okay. So you obviously got out of the way enough for them to, um, to be doing brilliantly, not least your son with his, we should say what his band's called actually while we're on. So um, do, you want to give his, do you want to give his band a plug? Yeah, Harry's band's called Waiting for Smith. He's a, an amazing singer-songwriter. Um, We'll put a link to his stuff in the show yeah. notes because um, I've li I've listened to his stuff and he's very talented, very eclectic mix of music. So no, and, and he um so yes, you obviously got out of the way enough to produce a rather talented offspring. Um, I was going to uh, after that really um very moving story about where QI came from, and I think it is really interesting for a podcast like this to know that that also wasn't perhaps that what was the easiest time in your life. So that this idea came at a point when you were questioning quite a lot and not quite sure what was next. So I think it's um it's a bit of a a hopeful story for other people who might be um, stuck in the mire at the moment but in a, in a sort of contrasting tone what's your favorite joke what's the best thing about switzerland i don't know but the flag is a big plus <laughs> <laughs> what did the left eye say to the right eye between you and me something smells <laughs> two cows grazing in a field one cow says to the other do you ever worry about that mad cow disease and the other cow says why would i care i'm a helicopter <laughs> <laughs> where does the general keep his armies in his sleeves how do you make holy water you boil the hell out of it uh, i do it's such a privilege you know to to work in comedy I feel like I've just had a sort of um, a, a sort of very sophisticated Christmas cracker opening experience with you there. It does uh, annoy me. You, you, it's perfectly possible we, we're definitely going to do some QI Christmas crackers next year. Yeah, you should. That's not on yeah. your flowchart, but I think, um, although you probably have, no, did you have merchandise on that? Yes, yeah, sales not, and merchandising. Yeah. So it could come under that. Um, well, if ever you need a business brain, John, to look at how you might roll some of these things out, you know, feel free uh, to, to pick mine. I tell you, I just uh, one joke that I like very much. Um, in the last year or so, I think somebody told it to me at Terry Jones's funeral, which was a very interesting and sad and happy day in all sorts of all different ways. Um, but this is before lockdown and all that kind of stuff. And um, anyway, there's, uh, this is before social distancing and so on. Two old couples uh, walking along in the street uh, and uh, one of the chaps says to the other one, he says, um, I'll tell you what, we had uh, Mrs. and I had a most delightful meal the other night. He said, uh, really, the decor was outstanding and delicious, really delicious food. I really would recommend it highly in service, but charming people, very nice. And the other guy says, oh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, what was the name of the, uh, of the restaurant? And the old guy goes, oh, dear. He said, oh, dear. Oh, I'm having a senior moment. It's gone right down the head. He said, uh, uh, look, he says, you have to help me out here a second. He said, um, it's uh, so a kind of flower, uh, and it's often red, and it's got thorns on it sticking out, thorns on it, red. He says, well, what's that? He says, oh, that would be Rose. I said, oh, yeah, thanks very much. Of course it is. He says, Rose, what was the name of that uh, restaurant we went to the other night? <laughs> <laughs> and was that something you heard? That Was that said at the funeral? No, no, it wasn't. It was, just, you know, having a 
was hanging around the crematorium afterwards talking to people, I think. Well, you have so. the best conversations. Crematorium yeah. are, uh, yes. Um, I'm just reading a book called The Silent Graveyards at the moment. That's brilliant, but not an uplifting, uh, not an uplifting story. Um, you know, I like graveyards because I sent you a picture of Douglas Adams' tombstone at Highgate Cemetery, yes. which is near me. I'm sure you'd seen it before, but I thought of you when I saw it. Mm. Um, John, I could listen to you and talk with you all day um, and hope to talk to you again very soon. But uh, as an end moment for the podcast, um, if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Well, I was thinking about this morning. Um... I would advise anybody who doesn't do it to take up yoga and meditation um, because it's very good for you. It's, it doesn't have to be weird or religious. It's, a, it's extremely good. It will make you feel better. Um, so that's a bit boring as a piece of advice, but it was very helpful for me when I was in, in a bad way in my 50s. I didn't have you down as a yoga and meditation. I think we've talked about mindfulness and I guess getting out of your own way is the ultimate aim of mindfulness, isn't it? And also just sitting with things, not trying to yeah. make yourself happy, letting the letting the moods go across the sky, like weather systems, knowing they'll pass. But the yoga bit, I hadn't had you down as a yogi. Are you still a... Are you well, still a I, I very rarely do it, but I do go on a retreat once a year. My, my wife, Sarah, does it every day because she has many years disease. You know, I thought you meant she went on retreat every day. And I was no, like, no. Well, how bad is your marriage? So no. she has what? She has many years disease. She has many years disease. Vertigo or labyrinthitis oh, yes. is where you lose your balance. And what, That's 15, a very tough thing to live with. It's awful. 15 yeah. years ago, she was falling down the street like a sack of potatoes. And it, because yoga is about balanced, I think it saved her life. Wow. And that's certainly amazing. It, it, it saved my life going... The second retreat we went on, I was in really, really a terrible way. I was, everything was going wrong at work. I was very overweight. I was very angry. I was very, very depressed. And that, it was no food, that retreat. It was, you know, literally, you know, uh, whatever, vegetable juice, one glass of vegetable juice twice a day. Was it silent so no, as well, a silent retreat? Yeah. Um, so no food, yeah. no talking? No. The opposite of the Garrett Club experience. Um, uh, yeah, I was very, very angry. But the thing is, and I remember it was in Austria, and we turned up with the people. We thought, God, these people, are, they're all dying. They're all these, I've never seen so many ill-looking people. And by the end of that, what was it, 10 days, they, everybody li literally looked 15 years younger. They were smiling, their eyes shone. It was an extraordinary experience. Absolutely extraordinary, very tough. And I came back feeling like 10 foot tall and, you know, looking younger and so on. It's, it's, uh, it is really very, very good for you. Very hard to get into. People basically, I'm sure, will be like me. and say, you know, yoga's for actors and girls, you know. I mean, I don't do that. It's not for real men. That's what I used to think, which is an absurd uh, position. I'm very sorry for who I was. Now, I was going to talk about um, my religion, which is agnosticism which is different to agnosticism. Um, an agnostic refuses to discuss whether God exists or not until the terms are defined, okay? So you tell me what kind of God looks like and what kind of God it is you don't believe, and then we can talk about that. But until the terms are defined, it's pointless. So agnosticism, which, of which I am the, the, the uh, sort of high prelate, as, as it were, only has five commandments. It's, it, you know, half as twice as easy as Christianity to sign up to because there's much less you have to worry about and there are only five commandments and they are one no fear two be kind three don't worry about what anyone else thinks you are imposter syndrome four do what you know to be right and five cheer up for god's sake <laughs> Well, that's a brilliant note on which to end the podcast, John. Um, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you, Kelly. What timing. Look at that. You're going to come out right to the clock. It's coming up to the midnight hour and ding. Namaste, that was the brilliant John Lloyd. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I am going to try. Anyone who listens to the podcast will know I'm a big fan of running. I even do a bit of Pilates, but I am no fan of yoga, mainly because I'm about as bendy as a piece of cutlery. Not a Yuri Gellard piece of cutlery, just a normal one. So I guess I'm scared that I won't be any good at it and that everyone will laugh at me. It'll be like being the fat kid at school again. So this week, I'm going to try my first 
ever yoga class. I've Googled it and apparently there are over a hundred different styles of yoga, including hot yoga, goat yoga and nude yoga. Good Lord. And when I Googled yoga classes in North London, which is where I live, there are about 20 pages of results. So I dare say I can find one where I can keep my clothes on and no goats. So that's it for the show for this week. Thank you so much to John for joining me. Thank you for listening. You can find links to John's books, shows and all the other good stuff in the show notes. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, although those things are true, but because it does help other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to award-winning comedian, actor, podcaster and writer, Jess Foster Q. I'm just too honest on podcasts, if I'm honest, which I'm about to be, I was pleased about the break from live work. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.